You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Elliot does Peloton every day, so I will... We have some nice hoodies and sweatpants, so you don't have to be uh, you don't have to be Duncan Keith. (laughs) (laughs) Johnny Oduya doesn't talk publicly, or at least that's what we thought. Welcome to Thirty Two Thoughts, the podcast presented by the all new GMC AT4 lineup. Now, Johnny Oduya, you may know as a two time Stanley Cup champion, playing on a number of NHL teams, including the Devils, the Thrashers, the Jets, the Hawks. Where he won cups, the stars descends and a single game with the Philadelphia Flyers. And as we talk about in this interview, people were surprised when he reached out and said he wanted to come on and talk to us about his career and promote his new endeavor, which is called Atune Young. And I'll talk more about that in a couple of seconds. We were surprised. Uh, everybody around us were surprised, but eagerly so. Like, we don't hear Johnny Oduya do interviews. We didn't know how it was going to go. Was it going to be a quick 10-minute chat, maybe a cozy 15 and wrap it up? We ended up talking for like 90 minutes and edited it down for clarity and conciseness, mainly chopping out parts by, you know, me and Elliot. Uh, but all the good Johnny Oduya stuff is in there. Fascinating guy. When he played, you know, paired with Nick Chalmerson in, uh, in Chicago, as much as Keith and Seabrook got the headlines, Chalmerson and Oduya were fantastic uh, en route to Stanley Cups. Really good, solid, smart hockey player, one that every single team could use. Really happy to do the interview. The new endeavor he's part of is called the Tunia, which is an athletic performance brand of training apparel. So whether it's, you know, compression shirts and compression shorts and hoodies and sweatpants. And by the way, if you go to the website, atunia.com, be better than yesterday, great tag. Check out the hockey sweater. It looks so cool. With that, we'll let you get listening to it. Here's Johnny Oduya, a really fun interview. Great guy, wonderful hockey player, and businessman now, helping spread hockey all around the world. Here's Johnny Oduya on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Enjoy. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously, 
It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Pleased to be joined now by two-time Stanley Cup champion and someone who now, Elliot, is dabbling in the world of fashion and clothing and athletic wear. He is Johnny Oduya, and he joins us on the podcast. Johnny, thanks so much for doing this. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you for uh, having me. Pleasure is all ours. First of all, where are you right now? I am in Stockholm, Sweden. Stockholm, Sweden. And um, when we think of your career, um, we'll think of the two Stanley Cups, certainly. We'll think of the time in New Jersey, and we'll think of you know the, the trade that, that took you to Atlanta and uh, the Chicago Cups and paired with Chalmerson. We'll, we'll get into a, a lot of this stuff now. But when you look back at your career now, what are some of the things that jump out at you right away? Is it just too obvious to say the two Stanley Cups? Uh, well, a good, uh, good question to start with. No, I feel, um, of course, that is hallmark uh, time of my career. But uh, I also feel very fortunate. In, and I've been, I think I've seen any, not everything you can see in the NHL, but I've been in small cities, uh, you know, Winnipeg is probably the smallest one. It's also probably the coldest one. Mm-hmm. And uh, with diehard fans. And then I was in Atlanta where it's hot, warm, and nobody cares about hockey at all. Or nobody cares about hockey at all. But compared mm-hmm. to maybe in in uh, mm-hmm. the fan base in Canada, it's completely different. And uh, big cities like New York, obviously being in New Jersey, old traditional sports cities like Chicago, I feel very fortunate. I, I feel like I've I've done hot, cold, small, big fans, no fans, every everything you can imagine. So, yeah, that is what I usually when I look back at it, I'm very happy and proud for that. I I got a lot of questions I want to ask you because I I I texted around, I called around, I said I I need some good Johnny Oduya stories, and we'll talk about some of the stops. But I have a couple of things. I have one story I need to ask you if this is true, and I'm going to credit the person who told me. It was Mike Rupp, a, a great guy, a great person. Yeah, I love Rupp. And Mike Rupp told me that it was almost your fault and his fault that Eli Manning and the New York Giants wouldn't have won a Super Bowl. They won two together, but there was a reason almost that Eli Manning never won a Super Bowl with the Giants, and it was because one of you was driving at a crosswalk. Is this story true? Uh, well, I can't even remember the details of this, but we we did live in the same building in um, uh, in Hoboken when I, when I first moved down there. I was one of the first guys that moved away from um, you know the more uh, the, the parts up in in uh, yeah the smaller towns around the the practice rinks so i moved down when we moved to newark and uh i don't remember exactly if i ran over or almost ran him over at the crosswalk but uh, <laughs> but something like that uh, i remember i do remember though when they won afterwards and it was uh, you know complete chaos everywhere in the streets and everything was beautiful 
But uh, yeah, I don't have that many more details of that. But I'm going to ask Rapper about that, actually. <laughs> he, said, he said in a text that you and him almost killed Eli Manning in a car while he was on a crosswalk. <laughs> yeah, that, that could have been true. <laughs> <laughs> wait a sec. Wait a sec. Okay, so I know you can't. You said you can't remember everything here. But if someone was going to do that, would it be you driving or Michael driving? I would probably blame that on him. And, uh, you know, he talks a lot too. And he's really, he gets excited. And, you know, uh, he talks a lot when he gets excited. So maybe we were having a deep, uh, loud conversation and one of us or none of us were paying attention to the road. So that, that could have been true. Yeah. The other story uh, I heard, Johnny, was, and it was really funny that a few players said, wait a sec, you guys are doing an interview with Johnny Oduya? And they said, I said, yeah. And they go, you're kidding me. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, there's not a guy who likes to talk about himself less than Johnny Oduya. I can't believe that he's actually doing an interview. Yeah. And uh, that is probably true. So for me, if I could pick, I would probably not talk about myself that much. No, uh, it's nothing against media per se. It's just uh, I don't really like that. But uh, it's good because now I can train and do that. And I think also now there's different things just that I do that have a cost that I think is more important than me. So then I have no problem talking about that. And of course, that's the vessel is through me, so to speak. So um then uh, there's a purpose, and uh, I, I love doing that, actually. There's a couple of interesting coaches that you've had al- along the way, and there's, there's one that I want to ask you about specifically as a defenseman. Uh, when you were with the New Jersey Devils, what did it mean to you, or what was it like having Larry Robinson around? Now, Elliot and I talk about Larry Robinson every now and then. I still think that he's... As as revered as he is in the game, I still think it should be more. Like I think he's one of the all timers. What was your experience like with Larry Robinson? Well, I love Larry. First of all, uh, he's a magnificent, fantastic individual as a person, as a human. He's he's just magical, and um, I think coming into New Jersey in my first year, this defensive, uh, you know, machinery. I think. Uh, a few places, I think, in the NHL ever in time that uh, had that kind of uh, feeling around it and the, the way they pursued and um, focused on the defensive game and the team game. And coming into that for me, it was quite surreal in the beginning, I think. I really got to learn how to play defense and how to do it. And, uh, of course, also having Marty Brodeur, uh, Marty in the back, if you play good and you play smart, there's going to be no goals, you know? So it was quite interesting. And uh, it was so many games back then. We won one nothing or 2-1, and it was just uh, it was unbelievable. But the coaches, not just him, but the whole coaching staff at that time was uh, something. I don't know how many NHL games they had in between them. So we had, at the time I was there, the first couple of years, I had Larry, of course. I also mm-hmm. had... Uh, Jacques Laperriere, which was actually the D coach that I had my first year. And I, I love Lappy too. Just very calm, smart individual with uh, a funny sense of humor. Uh, we watched a lot of videotapes. And uh, I watched sometimes when I didn't have a tape to watch on my games, he's like, Johnny, Johnny, you played good. Now we're going to watch the other guys. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm do that. So no, it was just fantastic. So him, of course... Uh, helped me a lot. Scotty Stevens was there at that time as well. And, um, you know, helped out with special things every now and then. Tommy Albelin was around the team at that time. And it was just 
you know, if you want to play defense, like who else is going to show you how to do that? It was just mm. unbelievable. So I, I got a really good start in how to, yeah, really develop that sense and awareness. And all we talked about all the time is where to position yourself, basically. So you need to understand where to put yourself at all times. And uh, that is also some of the things I actually teach younger players now, uh, that it's not just uh, about how fast and where you can skate and what you can do, which is, is uh, something that's moving into the game more and more. I like that part. I think the, the hockey is getting better, but there's also something around building awareness and understanding the game and um, developing that sense and that skill as well, which uh, I, yeah, I was very, very fortunate with that in the beginning. You know, I'm interested in that, Johnny. So when you teach kids, like you know, you played, including playoffs, you played, I think, 956 games. When you teach kids, what are the rules of defense that you teach? Like, what do you say to them? You have to do this and you have to know this. Yeah, we work on basic awareness, I would say. And one thing that I like to do now is uh, I put together a, a mindful defense camp with uh, one of my um, skills coaches, uh, uh, Daniel Broberg, which is a fantastic skill coach here in Sweden. And uh, we, we've done these a couple of times. And uh, I told him initially, I want to I have 12-year-olds. So I want to teach 12-year-olds how to play NHL defense game, basically. And some people are like, oh, maybe they're too young and they won't understand. And uh, I'm like, no, let's try it. And we tried it. So from 12 and then up, I wanted to bring them awareness of different situations, what can happen, and also what happens if you do a certain thing. So preparing them for different type of scenarios, basically. Because some coaches would like them to, if you're a defenseman, like to, to go attack fully in the corner. And some of them wants you to angle and position. And some of them wants to play overload defense. And, you know, there's so many variations of what can happen. And uh, I want to expose them to that. And if I can expose them to that, maybe they won't use it now for one or two years. But eventually they're going to run into that. Hmm. And uh, having the understanding and not seeing that for the first time, I think it's super important because the game now has changed. You need to be ready way earlier. When I came in, I was 23 or 24, and I think I was the youngest defenseman on the team at that time. And we had six guys in New Jersey that was over 35, I think, or something like that. So now the, the league is younger, players are younger, there's more speed. And you need to be ready way earlier. So if you're 16, 17, and you've never been exposed to any of these things, and you think you're going to play in the NHL, you know, two years later or three years later, that I think is a challenge. And you might make it if you're one of those top 0.1% skilled defensemen that can do that. But defensive game is more than just the puck handling. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you do that? Before you used to come in and, you know, you would have two or three years in the minors and you get to learn how to play the game. And, you know, that time is, uh, is basically gone now. So I think it's so mo much more important to learn those things way earlier. And they're adaptable. They can do it. I mean, they, <laughs> some of them are doing better than, than some of the older players that I, uh, <laughs> that I coach now. <laughs> so it's like they pick it up so fast and they understand. So it, it's super, super cool. So I love doing that.
what role does physicality play in all of this? Like when you go around a bench now, like anyone can do this, go to, if you're near an NHL bench or American league bench or, or at any level, really high level where once upon a time, we would always hear coming from the bench, finish your check, finish your check, finish your check. Now we hear good stick, good stick, good stick. Yes. Is there a role still with physicality? We know it's diminished, but what, if anything, is the role in physicality playing defense right now? Uh, mm. In New Jersey, we always talked about uh, positioning first. So you can go make a hit, but you can't get out of position to do it. So if you do that, that's fine. And sometimes, of course, depending on situation in games, you can try to make that big hit, maybe with the intention of changing the momentum, for example. Mm -hmm. So then it might be useful. But if you're running around all the time and you have no control of what you're doing because you want to collect hits, I think that's a very bad strategy for a defenseman. And for me, it was always more of trying to absorb hits and actually get the forwards to hit me because it's actually tough for forwards also to run around and hit people. Just ask any forward and you tell them to go around around and get 20 hits in a game. That's super difficult to do. They're going to be gassed out. So for me, it was almost the more people chase me and the more they hit me. And if I'm smart and I can move the puck, then come and hit me as much as you want. You're the one that's going to get tired. Mm. You know, it's almost like a boxing game where you defend yourself. <laughs> the other guy is punching, 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 punching. You're just defending, deflecting, defending, deflecting. And then when the time is right, you know, you're just going to get the puck and you move it. So if you're not afraid of getting hit and you know how to protect yourself and you can be smart around that, I think it's a, a really good way. And especially if you're, uh, you know, if you're smarter or, or smarter, but a smaller player that can move, then you should use your skating be in position first. And if you can finish checks, of course, do it. But if you run around without awareness, uh, for me, I don't think that's a good way to defend. And as you talked about with the sticks, that's... Uh, that was something that we talked very early on. I think that I agree with you that uh, this is the new hitting and uh, mm -hmm. the game is so fast that it's, it might be difficult to even get to forwards because they're, they're so fast and getting away. So uh, it's interesting to see the development. And uh, like I said, I, some of my friends and other people say that they, they don't like it. They think it's, uh, it's not like it used to be and there's no hitting anymore. And I don't agree fully with that i th i think maybe it's not as much in the in the regular season but mm -hmm. i mean i watched some of the playoff games not too many now the last couple of years but i think the intensity is there and the hitting is there and the momentum shifts are there and like all of these things are, are still there so um although the personnel mm. players look different now so they focus on different things John, are you going to coach someday? Like all this stuff is so good. I, I do coaching. That's what I said. I coach younger kids. No, 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 no. I know, but like, I, no, I understand that. But if I'm an NHL team listening to this, I'm saying this is a guy who could work with our prospects, or this is a guy who could coach our young defensemen. Do you have any goal towards that kind of thing? Um. No, I, I think my work is more outside of the teams. Of course, if, if there's um individuals that you know want to reach out and do that that's possible and of course through the teams also but I, I don't know what that would look like i kind of like it as it is now where i can do it off the grid so to speak mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, i love to help players so focusing on the individual players and what is needed for them and how i can support them 
that's something that I, I like to do. And if that's through team or agent or, uh, you know, whatever, it doesn't really matter to me. But uh, I want to focus on the players and the ones that really wants to learn and excel and absorb new information and uh, develop. Let me ask, because I've asked you about physicality. Let me ask you about shooting as a defenseman because that's changed as well like long gone are yes. the days of the gotta have the big clapper from the point and you're like the, those days <laughs> it's it's from from a bygone era teaching shooting for a forward is different than teaching shooting for a defenseman that's an elliot and i a while ago were uh, talking to tyler sagan the dallas stars and bringing up john klingberg and i think you were with dallas when john was yes. first starting in the nhl and Listen, his reputation is like he shoots high from the point and it's heads up in front of the net because he's he'll throw him in there high. But how do you teach kids to shoot from the point? What's important in 2022? How do you shoot as a defenseman? I agree with everything you said. And uh, oh, that's going to go right to his head, Johnny. I just want you to know ooh, that. that's my new ringtone now, John. Thank you for that. <laughs> yes. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm the best person to actually talk about this because uh, I'm I'm not a, a significant goal scorer in the NHL, uh, so that might be one thing. But uh, other than that, uh, yeah, I agree with that. It has changed. I think you need to shoot on moving pucks. So uh, you know, just loading up and shooting. I think that's difficult. If you can shoot, find one timer positions where you can shoot off the wall or off broken plays or off plays like that. I mean, I scored some of the goals I scored at the end of my career was just shooting off people into the net, basically. So getting the puck into the net and getting it through, that's some of the things that we're working on. And then, of course, I think I take influence from, from these guys you're talking about, uh, Karl Makar or Klingberg or whoever it is that have this ability to move. And for me, mm. that's not just a shot. That's actually how you move your feet. So that is a skating practice just as much for me anyway as it is shooting. Uh, the one I looked a lot at when I was younger was um, was Nick Lidstrom, how he had a, the ability to grab pucks off the wall. Oh, uh, if you're yeah. on the blue line, he can grab it off the wall, just take one, two smooth, almost like, I don't know, like a duck wiggle with his tail. And then he would just like <laughs> shoot pucks that would somebody would tip in, like Holmstrom was in front, tipping them, everything. And um, I tried to practice that as much as I could. And now it's almost like a, there's a 2.0 level of that where there's multiple fakes and moves and turns. And uh, Duncan Keat was uh, fantastic at this. And I watched that up front uh, sure. closely, of course, how he had the ability to move and move his skates and they create opportunities. Um, so, yeah, shooting off moving pucks, I would say, yeah. Let me ask you one more super geeky question so Elliot can roll <laughs> his eyes at me here. <laughs> How do you instruct defensemen on what to do with, you know, rolling or wobbling pucks? Because it's one thing for a forward, like around the net, wobbling puck, like shoot it every time because no one knows where it's going to go, especially the goaltender. So you do it. Is it the same for defensemen from farther out? What do you do with a wobbling puck? Where is the wobbling puck and where am I? You're on defense. The puck is, has squirted back to the blue line, but it's not flat. You're at the point and that, pu okay, and that puck yeah. is squirted to you, and it, but it's wobbling. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it's the read question. If 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 it is, um, hmm. it depends on the speed of the puck. If it's coming really fast at me, I probably won't swat at it. Okay. If it's coming slower and I, I sense that if I miss it, I can get out, then uh, maybe I would swat at it and try to shoot at it. Yeah, I've scored some of those goals too where 
it's impossible for the goalie to save it. It's just yeah. bouncing and getting in there. So I would say if, if the puck is coming really hard, I, I probably will try to stop it with my body, get it down. If somebody's attacking me, which usually forwards do, if you're on the blue line and there's a bouncing puck, they should attack me. And if they do that, then usually I would back out and then collect the puck and try to do something with it. Hmm. But uh, yeah, it's a read situation. It's difficult to know exactly what to do, but yeah. All right, you got any more scenarios, Merrick, that you're going to run on here? Is it, I like <laughs> okay. to get like hyper geeky on this kind of stuff. I could, I could do this all day, Johnny. Uh, no, that's me. good. Like, actually, I, I have to say, I found that all really, really interesting. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was about is some of your travels. You know, you played in Thailand a couple times in your career, including after you left the NHL. And I know, la- I think it was last summer, the summer before. You can correct me that you and Oliver Shillington went to Kenya together. And you worked on doing some roller hockey there to try to grow the sport. Um, just what was it like playing in Thailand and in some of these places where maybe we don't think about as normal with hockey? What was your experience like there? Yes, I, I went to Thailand during the lockout and uh, had nothing to do. I learned nothing to do, but I worked out here with the team. I skated a little bit, but then as it looked at that time, we were not going to start before Christmas. So I'm like, I got to do something. I found a team in Thailand, so a lot of Swedes go to Thailand in the in the winter time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, basically, me and my friend went there. <clears throat> we looked it up, and they thought first that there was it was a joke. Uh, that <laughs> they're like, "Why are you going to come here?" <laughs> but it wasn't, and they were really surprised when I showed up at the airport. It's like, "Yeah, it's actually you." I'm like, "Yeah, I want to skate." So yeah, it it was fantastic. It was just one of the best things I think. Uh, I could have done at the time. Uh, it was a beautiful hockey community with uh, expats and, and ties and everything mixed together, playing in a league. Yeah, I could have the ice for myself at times with a couple of players, worked out a lot with that. I, I had hockey clinics for some of the kids and uh, skated with the other players at night that uh, played some, you know, some shinny games and some other games they had. And I was there for um, you know a month or two or something like that. And uh, I still have ties and, and friends that I still talk to now from that time, of course. And when I have the time to come back, uh, go back, uh, I do that. And, and we had this tournament that, uh, that we played and we actually won also. It was super cool. Uh, it was the f- first thing I, I, I won. <laughs> I've never won anything before. This was before the Stanley Cups. So I was so happy uh, that I actually got to win something in, in Thailand. So the, the, the Thai... Um, uh, it's not a national championship. It's more of a tournament with different teams from uh, other cities as well, actually, around uh, Southeast Asia. So it was great. And now I think the tournament's uh, growing, and I've seen a lot of Canadian teams signing up and go and play in there. Uh, the game is growing a lot. They're building one or two new rinks now, I think, in dan- downtown Bangkok, which is great. It's more than they build here in Stockholm. So I don't know what that says, but... Um, yeah, it's been really fun. I'm I'm looking, trying to get back there and hold a, a skills or a, or a youth camp in um, uh, at some point in December this year. I hope at the new rink. I think it's done by then. So it's wonderful. It's just it's great. It's so nice to go to these different places when there's hockey community and hockey players are lovely like that. You know, anywhere you go, you always feel like you're a part of uh, the part of the gang and uh, it's very welcoming and happy and and uh, it binds people together through the sport. So it's fantastic. And what about Kenya with uh, with Oliver Shillington? 
Yeah, so Kenya is a little bit different of a project. Uh, of course, they also they actually did the big uh, the 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 lions there did the um, photo shoot not too many years ago. I think with uh, Tim Hortons, mm. then uh, they brought them over from Kenya to Canada and skated with uh, Sidney Crosby and Kin and maybe also uh, and did a big photo shoot around that. So they had hockey there and have had it for some time. Uh, they have this old uh, square rink in a in a hotel that they uh, that they play at when we were there this summer that rink was closed so we skated in the park so they have this big parking lot in the center of of nairobi where they clear out on sunday so then they play roller hockey for three hours and there was also some speed skating going on on the side and uh, this was a um, uh, you know a base and a and a photo opportunity and brand building opportunity also for uh, Atunia, the sports brand down that I'm creating. And uh, we wanted to set the base with this. And it was so cool. I've been looking for projects in Kenya to do some type of charity work and combine it with something. And, and this worked out great. I mean, my, my dad's from Kenya. My roots are there to some extent. And it was just a wonderful thing. And now we have this beautiful project where they already been doing this, so we just plug in and play, and and uh, we're having a um, uh, a photo venissage exhibition actually now in Stockholm here in two weeks, where we uh, we're taking all these beautiful photos of uh, different environments and players and all these things, and now we we're gonna do a charity event with that to try to feed the project even more. So th- there's a lot of good things and touch points that uh, it's very nice for me and. Uh, they're great. Like the individuals that are there are also amazing. You know, uh, we were there. We we brought these little plastic pucks. You know, the ones you use on asphalt. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, we brought those, and uh, we started to play. And me and Oliver were kind of looking at each other, we're like this is going to get you know wild. <laughs> and uh, and they were holding they were holding back on us, and mm-hmm. and they, they were full fledged, you know, blocking shots with no gear. This plastic puck. If you get that on your knee, you break your knee. Oh, yeah. Like. They don't care about anything. And uh, hard on, full passion, just most passionate hockey players you can imagine. And some of them are from probably one of the toughest parts in the world. Uh, you know, some of the ghettos outside of uh, Nairobi, which are enormous, you know. And they take their skates on and they skate 45 minutes to get to the park. They skate for three hours and then they go back, block shots. And they're like, yeah, it's just amazing individuals. Yeah, it's not something that uh, that you see every day. And I think Oliver had a similar experience. I think it was very eye-opening and humbling for him as well uh, when we spoke about that. And so we'd love to do more, more, more stuff like that. It's very nice. So, yeah. You know, Johnny, like athletes are athletes. If you're a good athlete, you can do a lot of different things. But the rollerblades and, and learning how to control on a stick, it's so unique and so different. So... I just wonder for kids who've never been exposed to that kind of thing before, how long does it take them to to master it or to to learn it or to become comfortable at it? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's similar to playing hockey. So they're on the ice and they've been doing this for a long time. So we are not the one that started that project, which is mm. super interesting. Mm-hmm. So now we just, uh, we supported skates uh, through uh, Marshblade was one of the sponsors for that. So they gave them, we, you know, we have like 25 pairs of skates or new, new inlines that we brought down. And that was... Uh, you know, magical by itself. And then, of course, we donated jersey for them to play in. Uh, we're looking at, uh, 
you know, donating sticks, uh, getting into programs with some of them to, to go to school and doing all these things. So they're really good skaters. They're really, really good skaters. There's a lot of speed skaters too. A lot of the girls do speed skating also. So they have this big like roundabout on the other side that they do. And uh, they're good skaters. Really, really, really good. So yeah, like I said, for us to just tap into that project and try to uh, develop it further. I mean, there's talks about maybe creating an, a, a real rink, for example, wow. and, uh, you know, getting sponsorships and stuff around that. So I think th there's a lot of these places around the world where hockey is very cool and uh, that you don't think of. And, and it's a really passionate community. And for me, when I see this, this is the pure form of love for the sport. And it doesn't matter if you're in Nairobi or if you're in the back street of playing street hockey in, in Canada somewhere. For me, that's the same thing. The, you know, there's no lights, there's no cameras, there's no, there's no media. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, and all of these things are gone. Obviously, we, we were the ones filming now, but uh, it, it's something very pure and beautiful around that. And uh, we're trying to recreate that feeling in, in individuals and for me also in myself. I think the, the selfish purpose of that is it really gives me a lot of joy and... Uh, you know, drive to be able to feed into these projects. Yeah. You know, that, that's probably a good entry point then to ask you about Atunia. You, you mentioned that a second ago. This is a high performance uh, athletic year that you've created. Take us through it from the, the root to the fruit. Uh, what's the idea and what's the, the execution here? Well, the first thing I learned was don't start a clothing company during the pandemic <laughs> people still need clothes John. yeah I, I know you, you said that but but uh, uh, yeah it's also difficult to produce and do all these things but uh, no uh, it's something that i've been looking for for a long time I, I mean i've been in i do a lot of not i wouldn't say weird things nowadays but uh, i've been into this kind of holistic approach of doing things for for some years now i wouldn't say 10 years but uh, almost maybe eight at least and um, how do you build uh, not just s sustainable clothing for once, but uh, how do you build, you know, sustainable players or sustainable humans or, or whatever you would call it? And uh, I find that super interesting. I mean, I'm involved in a, in a breathwork uh, studio that we also opened here in Stockholm that it's kind of the same thing of developing individuals. And uh, Obviously, with clothing, it, there's something that you wear and everybody can see. So it's kind of the marketplace or uh, the, the showcase. And then behind that, you can build a lot of other different values. And uh, we have the, the mindful approach that I love competition. I think it should be there. But there's also other things that if you overcompete, so to speak, uh, that you might lose. And uh, if you're not aware of that, then, then uh, that would be uh, a deficit, I think, in the long run. And uh, we talk a lot about, you know, environment nowadays and uh, mm -hmm. also the diversity for the game. I think it's a super interesting question. There's a challenge in hockey that is, is uh, it's beautiful community, but it's also very traditional. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually had a talk with... Uh, Matt Sandin the other day, we had lunch and uh, we talked about when Nike was trying to get into hockey. Uh, Nike is the biggest brand in the world. There's no, there's, there's no other uh, sports brand that's bigger. And they could not do that. The money wasn't the problem. It was they didn't have the ability to get in there and expand that market and take it over. That's also true for actually brands that come from hockey. Uh, 
it's very difficult for them to transcend and be something outside of the sport. And for me, this is super, super interesting and something that we can work with and try to bridge this gap between what is the hockey world like and can we expand that and work with that and push the boundaries a little bit to also make it more applicable and, and suitable for the rest of society. So we want to keep the traditions to some extent. We don't want to change everything. But we also want to develop all the time to become more and also attract maybe a different type of individuals. So in Sweden, for example, uh, the demographics for hockey is quite tight. And to sustain hockey and develop it, you know, in, in a couple of years, if we don't do that here, we're not going to have that much hockey left. It's just going to be a certain amount of people that would play and we're going to lose a lot of talents. So we need to develop this and we need to have this different approach. And through Atunia, I can work on all these levels. I can work on, you know, the sustainability, of course, both for athletes and in the clothing, but also how do we develop the sport and really become growing the game in a, in a good way, in a sustainable way. I think that is really important. That's something that I like to do. So what are your short-term goals and your long-term goals there? If it, you know, when we look at this in maybe a year, Johnny, what do you hope to see? And maybe when we look at this in 10 years, what do you hope to see? Yeah, of course. Now we want to sell some clothes. I think that drives a lot of the products and everything that we do. So, so that's one thing. But, but of course, uh, I want to be able to sustainably build this so we can feed all uh, into all of these projects that we do and, and, and create a picture of a hockey player that's maybe a little bit different than we're used to. So in the same way as I've been doing, you know, in Thailand, it was 10 years ago, I was there and promoting the game and something happened there and this sparked something. I think through the brand, we can do this. I can do this in multiple places. And my hope also is to do it in other sports where maybe some other sports are quite traditional or heavy in some places. And you can view it in a different way and get a different look at it. And I think that's useful for the rest of the world, you know, to get away a little bit from that traditional way of, of looking at uh, at hockey and how it has to be. Because it could be any, anything and everybody can play it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I also love street. Like now also we're doing a, a tournament in, 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 in Stockholm this summer as well. And there we're not going to have the, the, the inlines. Uh, I want to make it even easier. Just bring your shoes, a stick and, and some gloves and uh, you can play the game. And if we can bridge that, maybe we could get more individuals into getting interest for the sport, basically. And uh, also having the street vibe, then uh, the urban community will, will start to also attach with the brand a little bit more. So we can live outside of the sport. That's what I'm trying to do. So have a brand that will have the ability to bridge these two worlds. That's, uh, that's what I see in front of me. Did, did you do all the design on this? Because the stuff looks great. Like, it looks super cool, Johnny. I can't take all the credit. I have some unbelievable people that I work with. So uh, they give me usually a lot of options, and then we weigh them back and forth, and uh, creators, uh, everything from art directors to designers to production, uh, everything is, uh, yeah, it's a lot of work from their end. And uh, I think the result is uh, is good. Of course, like everything else, we're developing things all the time, becoming better, getting feedback, and uh, yeah, it's just a fun. It's a fun journey. It's like I said, it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult during the pandemic, but I think we learned. I think we learned a lot too during that time that. Uh, we had to be really mindful because we can't get affected what's going on in the outside world. A lot of things are uncertain. A lot of times, like now we have 
a different situation here in Europe, as as you know mm-hmm. as well. And um, this instability and these things that we can't affect from the outside, we uh, we had to learn to be mindful ourselves, basically, and and uh, walk the talk, not losing focus, and and doing what we feel is the right thing. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll put some links uh, for Atunia in the in the show notes. So anyone hearing this right now, we can uh, we can direct them there. I want to ask you about a couple of things about the Stanley Cup, and the first one specifically. Uh, take us back to Game Six in uh, in the series against the Boston Bruins. You win the Stanley Cup. It's a sudden comeback by the Chicago Blackhawks. You're on the ice. You feed Dave Boland. Uh, he scores. No Bickle from Caves and Kane at 18:44 in the fifth third bank third period. Jalmerson, Hawk line, right wing. Put it ahead to Bowen. Racing over the Bruin line. Gave it up for a leak. He fires from the right circle. Stick save made by Rass. Here's Oduya drive. They hold it. score. It's Bowen in front of the net. Oduya fired a shot and deflected it on Rass. He left the rebound in the paint of the crease. And there was Dave Bowen to drive it home. 58 seconds away from the Stanley Cup are the Chicago Blackhawks. They lead the Bruins 3-2. This place is stunned, and so am I. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. At what point after you made your pass did you think, whoa, that's the game-winning goal? Hmm. Uh, yeah, that was a weird, uh, it was a weird 17 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I felt, uh, number one, I felt really good that game. I, I still remember the feeling I had before the game. Hmm. And uh, I don't know if it was... Yeah, because I thought we were going to win, but it was just something about that game that was, uh, I felt on point, really focused and, and super clear, everything. And uh, the game before, I didn't. I, was, uh, I had a tough game the, the game before, but we won that one, thank God, so it was nice. But uh, what did I think? No, I think when I shot that puck, we just looked up and it was not that much left. And I think both of me and Hammer and me or me and Kruger, we, we just looked at each other and nobody, we didn't really celebrate. We're like, okay, what's going on? And this is weird. And uh, yeah, we just looked at each other. And then basically, I think me and Hammer were still going to be on the ice. Maybe Krug's also actually. So we just came back to the face-off circle and we we're like, okay, what the fuck's going on? And uh, it was just super weird. It was so strange because it happened so fast. Yeah. And um, yeah, I didn't even think about what happened i think until months afterwards and uh you know i see of course then when you win you're just you win so then you're happy you, but uh <laughs> yeah i remember the, the the feeling of looking at the clock on top of you know in front of the goal there or in, on top of the back of the goal and just okay 17 and then just yeah this is not done you know that was the initial thought i think i had so when you think about your favorite memories or your favorite parts of the journey, what are the things that, you know, jump into your head, Johnny? Oh, um, well, there's so many things. Wow. Like I said uh, in the beginning, I, I feel enormously fortunate. That was one of the questions when somebody somebody asked me, I was 37, you know, I stopped playing now three years ago. And they're like, oh, you could play a little bit longer. You're still in shape. And you can, I'm like, yeah. I can be greedy or I could be extremely grateful and uh, really embrace what I got. And then for me in the next step, like I'm doing now, is, is, that, is there things here I can use that is useful for others? 
then I could do that maybe instead, instead of playing until I'm 45. And there's a, there's a long stretch. There's a lot of things to learn in the, in the other world. <laughs> so uh, I needed the time to do that. But I've learned, yeah, I've, I've felt very fortunate the whole time. So many different teams and winning and losing. And like I said, hot and cold teams and big, small cities, teammates, like everything's just been, I had, you know, eight, nine different type of coaches. I've learned so many things. And I remember sitting on the bench in 2015. I think it was the, the countdown of the last couple of seconds. And, you know, time just slows down at that point. And you sit there and you watch. And you're just watching around like this United Center. The place is full. Everybody's screaming. And I remember how slow those like 10 seconds. But I was in this complete... It's just this point where everything is connected to. And it's quite hard to describe but it's one of the things that I, I wish for everybody on this planet. It doesn't matter if you play sports or whatever you do, that you at some point in your life uh, will have the feeling of that, that you, you can connect so many dots and that you go through this journey. And when you get there, uh, it's almost like it all, it all repeats itself. I don't, know if, I don't know if that makes any sense, but you get these like flashbacks and all the things you're, you're describing I was just very at ease and very grateful. And then, you know, the buzzer horn, the, the horn is, uh, the game's over, the horn rings, and then it's party for a week. You have no idea what's going on. And, and then <laughs> life is back to normal the couple of weeks after whatever. But, but um, yeah, it was magical. I, and I watched that. I mean, I, I tried to watch the last Stanley Cup game uh, that I think, well, whatever, usually it's like game six or five, six or seven or something like that, when somebody has the chance to win. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I miss that, I usually watch the, the rerun at the end just to see that, that part because I relive it every time I watch it. And uh, I watch the players and the feeling that they have and how, how happy they are. And when I talk to young individuals that might be struggling and, and uh, you know, don't see their way forward or where to go, this is what I try to not speak about, but I try to live in the way that they will get that feeling from me. So that will be the part that they, they can see that, okay, that is why we do this. You know, we're not in this for uh, buying the new cars or buying the new house or buying all these things. It's just these simple moments that will line up eventually and will give you an experience that uh, you cannot pay for. You have to work to get it and have to experience to get it. I remember when, when you guys won in 2013, it was Michael Hanzus and it was Jamal Mayers. Yeah. And when you won in 2015, it was Antoine Vermette. And, you know, you played for a while too before you won the first time, but I can only imagine what it must have been like to celebrate with those players yes. who had never won before and had been around longer. Like That must be the kind of person that you're talking about there as much as anybody else. Yes, I think Kimo Timonen was there too. Also, yes, Kimo Timonen, yeah. great guy, great yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And and I also remember this is actually a fun or fun story, but I remember that in 2013 we were celebrating afterwards, and you know I was uh, drunk and crazy and like oh big party time. I was hoisting around <laughs> the cup in the bar somewhere, and I put it down, and I was like, up with my friends jumping around, and I look over and Duncan Keith and. Uh, Patrick Sharp was sitting on the bar 
with a beer, just like one beer, no crazy party, nothing they won before. So maybe they were like, okay, we're tired of this. But they were sitting there and they were watching me. And when I looked at them, they looked at me and I sensed that they were super happy. They're like, this is so fun to watch this guy having this good of a time. You know, It's actually true. It's something beautiful around that when you, you watch somebody else, when you already kind of been in that space before and you don't need to jump around because you're jumping around inside anyways and you understand how happy they are and what what is going on and that is uh it's super super cool it's really nice i, I love that part of uh, of the game and i would love for everybody of course everybody can't win the stanley cup but you know there's different things how to uh you know approach that and, and get that into your life okay i got two more for you first of all you talked about duncan keith there He's got the reputation as being the most unreal physical conditioned athlete. But I also heard, Johnny, you were a guy who was in great shape or is in great shape, was always very careful about what you put into your body. Did you and Duncan ever go head to head in fitness competitions? What is the one thing you will not eat? And who did you ever play with that you looked at them and said, I cannot believe how little you take care of yourself. <laughs> all right. That was a lot of questions, though. But, okay, so first of all, you versus Keith. You versus yeah, Keith. me versus Keith. Uh, I, I have, uh, I wouldn't say I have no chance, but he is a uh, physical and mental phenomenon. So I think a lot of his power is not just in his body, which uh, uh, it's actually in his mind and his mindset. Yeah, he's a great friend and and. Uh, I, I admire him a lot. I, I loved being in Chicago for that reason. Uh, getting in there was, you know, like this revelation and opening up for me where all of a sudden all these extreme things and weird things that I thought that I liked to do that I couldn't really do in other places, mm -hmm. then that was possible to do in Chicago. And it was actually, uh, it was seen as something positive. Like you wanted to do something extra to win. So, okay, go ahead, do that. It was no problem. So we tried, uh, you know, a lot of, of different uh, uh, things when it comes to training or uh, food or supplements or whatever it is, you know. So that was a really fun time. And, of course, uh, Duncan was, uh, you know, in the forefront with some of us with that. I think me, me him, uh, Taser, Sharpie was in there too for a little bit, I think, and um, Kruger, of course. Uh, we uh, we wanted to try to push that as as much as possible and see where how can we any edge we can find you know then we wanted to do that and and Duncan was uh, of course the specimen I was at the one time it was actually it's kind of funny because uh, sometimes it would show up things that he'd been doing for like two months and I didn't know he was doing it and I'm like oh you're doing that too and it was almost like not like when he was hiding something but <laughs> but I don't know it was internal competition no no it wasn't but uh, it was it was it was great it was wonderful and he's uh, he has a lot of speed and he he can be really intense but he can last also for a long time so he can do both which is not unusual and i think that actually comes a lot from his mind as well and the way he trains and all these things so so that's super super cool and uh, you know he would <laughs> yeah he'd be yelling at me coming to the bench and i was tired and he was like yelling at me a lot of times at the especially at the end there i i took some face-offs in the, in the defensive zone, and then I would just go change. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he was pissed off because he thought I was too slow going to the bench, you know, <laughs> after the shift. And he was like yelling at me to get on the ice, get on the ice. And it was like this, uh, 
it's almost like the road runner, you know, when you hold them up and it, the feet are going. And as soon as I came to the bench, he just like took off right on the ice. But um, he's fantastic. Uh, and what was the other question? So, so, so what, what don't you eat? What is like your no way? I'm, I'm probably more now. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm more strict now. Yeah, probably more strict now. I play around more with my diet now than during my career because I can. Uh, I do different type of fasting protocols or I eat certain a certain way for a longer amount of time because I can now because I don't have to perform at that level. Uh, I think that could be difficult if anybody's listened to this that, um, that wants to play around a lot uh, with their diet. I, I would recommend maybe not doing too much, but whatever you feel is, is good. <laughs> so I will eat basically everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like, oh, if I eat that, then I'm going to fall apart. I think that's a very bad way of approaching food. I think you can eat almost everything. Uh, the question is how much and how often you do it. So I would not eat you know, wheat products, for example. I don't eat that very often. Very seldom I do that. I just feel better when I don't. Uh, I, I sense that I sometimes get a little bit almost like swollen and inflammation in my body when I do. Uh, I don't eat that many dairy products. I mean, other than that, I mean, I eat fish and veggies and uh, grains depending on like rice and quinoa, potatoes and these things, depending on how much I actually uh, work out. But sometimes I go straight ketogenic diet where uh, I take out almost all the carbs. So I, I play around. I do a lot of different things there. But uh, it was a long time ago that I had, a, you know, spaghetti carbonara, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I think that was a, that was a long time ago. Pizza, regular pizza, I usually don't eat either. I have some gluten-free options at times that I eat, but that's mostly for the cheese, actually. There's a lot of cheeses that's difficult sometimes. I eat burgers, good, nice grass-fed burger. If there's a gluten-free bun, I can do that, but uh, a real burger, homemade, I really love that. So I don't think I'm too crazy, actually, anymore. Uh, it's not too <laughs> bad. It's not no, too it's bad. No, it's not that. I, it's kind of normal. Not not too bad. Okay, and my last one is, who was the, wor who was the worst at taking care of themselves you ever played with? <laughs> uh, Jesus, this is, the, this is the question you're going to get haunted for, right? Um, <laughs> it's the last one, so yeah, go exactly. out with a bang. Go out with a bang. The last yeah. question. Um, in Chicago, we always made fun of Seepsy because he uh, he was like the human trash can. He would just put down anything he could. <laughs> I don't I don't know uh, if that has changed now. I haven't talked to him, but uh, um, yeah. I mean, Dustin Bufflin was kind of like that too. He loved to eat a lot of different things. Oh, what a phenomenal yeah. athlete! Bob yeah, yeah, like yeah. What he is just one of a kind. Great guy too, Buffy. Listen, yeah. you spent a lot of time with us today. We really appreciated this. We had no idea where this was going to go, but it went to a lot of special <laughs> places. You're a really special guy, um, Johnny. Thanks so much. We wish you all the success with the new clothing line as well. It looks fantastic. Details uh, will be in our show notes. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, take care. Be well. Look forward to catching up down the road. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Breaking out of the box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that was a lot of fun. Great guy. If you get a chance, check out some of his clothing brand. Atunia.com is the website. As we're in the sun, we're taking you out with something warm. Matt Berry is an artist who isn't afraid to dip his toe in several genres, from folk rock to new age synth. 
even bits of country rock and psychedelia to boot. Barry is a multi-instrumentalist whose vocals complement his lyrics. From his latest record, The Blue Elephant, here's Matt Barry with Summer Sun on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously, it doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences, People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host.